I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. We've looked at cities from a lot of different angles on this show, but today's guest offers a unique view. On this episode, we're joined by one of the nation's foremost authorities on urbanism and the future of city life. I think the key thing for cities, this is what I would tell the city leaders, make the places livable, make them more attractive. That's none other than Joel Kotkin, a professor at Chapman University in Orange County, California, and the author of 10 books. Joel is an expert on demographics, geography, economics, and more, a thought leader on social and political trends. We recorded this episode as part of a virtual forum organized by CBRE's Econometric Advisors Group. The formal topic was the future of office, but our conversation ranged further. We shared discussion and debate about the state of urban areas across the map, about globalization, about people and policy, and yes, even pastrami. Coming up, exploring a world of cities with Professor Joel Kotkin. What's driving the evolution of urban life in America and beyond? That's right now on The Weekly Take. Joel Kotkin, author of over 10 books, New York Times writer, Chapman University professor. And if I read your entire bio, Joel, that's all we would do today. It's that impressive. So, Joel, thank you for joining us today. That's my pleasure. So, Joel, let's get right into it. The future of cities. Many people are saying that people are going to be moving out of New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, and moving to the new school cities of Nashville, Denver, Raleigh, Tampa, Orlando. Is this happening, and will that be a permanent shift? Well, first of all, it's already been happening. It's been happening for most of the last decade and accelerated well before the pandemic. Does that mean that you know New York City is going to become the new you know empty prairie? No. There will be people who will stay in New York. I think it will change somewhat. Um, I don't think you're going to have the kind of growth that, let's say, someone like Michael Bloomberg predicted, you know, about you know, a city of 10 million people. I don't think we're going to see that in our lifetimes. I don't think we were going to see it before the pandemic. But I think that the, what we're doing is we're seeing somewhat of a reordering. In other words, more economic energy in, A, the emerging cities that you talk about, but also within the metropolitan regions to the suburbs. And finally, to smaller towns. Even in the last few years, there's been more migration to smaller cities than bigger cities in general. So these trends were already happening before the pandemic and before the disorders this summer. And both of those things have accelerated that trend. Well, Joel, I'm holding up a copy of a book here called The City by Joel Kaiken. As a matter of fact, in this book, I think you suggest that the history of the world surrounds megacities, how the biggest cities in the world from Carthage to Cairo to Paris to London to New York, set the tone for the history of the world. Have we now reversed that trend? I don't think we've reversed it. I think it's changing. In other words, we're we're not likely in our lifetimes to see the dominance, let's say, of London in 1900 or New York in 1950. I, I think we, we're going to see many more centers of influence And I think we're going to also see that a lot of even the very creative and innovative companies are going to be dispersed. They're going to be much more dispersed. It's not going to be everybody that you need to talk to is all within walking distance. 
They may be within zooming distance. It's a change in the configuration, not the end of the of the big cities. And you're certainly not going to have the kind of dominance of one, two, three cities that you had in the past. There are just too many new players. You know, there's Shanghai and there's Beijing and there's Singapore and there's Mumbai. And, you know, so it's going to be a many different cities and dispersion within each country. While all these cities are different, looking at your book, there seems to be a common theme among those cities that have succeeded. You point to uh, Lisbon, Portugal, back four or 500 years ago, that was an early adopter of globalization. Globalization right now is certainly being called into question in certain ways, but is the Lisbon example still valid? Are cities that embrace globalization going to be more successful than those that embrace more of a regional approach? I think it's going to vary, but I think that, you know, globalization isn't going to go away. I think it's still a major factor. I think one of the really interesting changes in the United States, and I think they're also beginning to happen in other countries, but particularly in the United States, is the movement of of the foreign-born to cities that, that they traditionally did not go to in large numbers. You look at the rate of growth in the foreign-born in Dallas, Houston, Nashville, Orlando, uh, Atlanta, uh, Phoenix, is now much faster than the growth in New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago. So these cities are just becoming global players. So I think the global stage will just become more crowded. And I think the movement of the foreign-born is a great indicator of that. This question of where the foreign-born workers go uh, really gets to the heart of so many macro issues, specifically around growth, uh, particularly in the face of what you point out as the birth dearth that we have in the United States, in China, in Western Europe. So will immigration be the key to this future success of cities? I think it's going to become increasingly important. Um, and it's going to become important also in the sense that those cities that can accommodate the upwardly mobile and accommodate families, I think, are going to be in a stronger position. You know, if you take a look at the birth rates in Houston, Dallas, Nashville, Atlanta, and compare them to the birth rates in San Francisco, Seattle, and certainly Manhattan and increasingly New York City in general, there's an enormous sense that the demographic trajectory is much stronger in these emerging cities and within regions, again, in the suburbs. I think what you're going to see is something H.G. Wells wrote about this about 120 years ago. And he said that eventually the core city would become a place of concourse and rendezvous that we would go there because of the experiential nature of cities that gives you something that you can't get someplace else. He also mentioned that families would go elsewhere. So he, he said the future of the big city would be a culture of luxurious extinction. So I think what we're going to see, and this has already been happening, is our cities are going to be made up largely of, certainly in their cores, of people without children, except for the very wealthy, because they're the only ones who can afford to have children in, in the big cities anymore. And so I think you're going to see just this continually changing sort of demographic, which is going to make certain areas more vital than others. What will be the function in this place of concourse and rendezvous? And I think we've talked about this offline as well. It's going to be the place where the 25-year-old who wants to meet somebody wants to network, wants to meet a person of the same or opposite sex, 
um, they're still going to go to Manhattan or Chicago or, or, well, San Francisco even to have that experience. But I think by the time they get to their 30s, mid, mid-30s, begin to think about buying a house, having a family, they're not going to have to say, how do I stay within striking distance of San Francisco? They're going to say, maybe I can move to Salt Lake City. Maybe I can move to Denver. Maybe I can move to Dallas and still do my job. And that's going to be an enormous change. You use the dichotomy of San Francisco versus Dallas. Uh, We certainly could talk about the United States of California versus the United States of Texas as a paradigm. But I'm going to push back on you because I agree with you that the demographics in New York and San Francisco uh, certainly don't look positive in an aggregate sense in terms of the total number of people. But the quality of the people, the education levels, the amount of capital in and going to these cities, we project that to only increase. So while I see great strength in Dallas, I am not prepared to throw San Francisco or New York under the bus. As a matter of fact, I'm recommending to our investors to back up the bus or the truck to invest there. What do you think, Joel? I would invest there if the price has dropped enough. I think that's probably not where the future goes. In terms of the, the, the quality of the education, actually the increases in the education levels of many of these cities like Nashville is actually more rapid than what you see in other places. I think you're going to see a lot of movement into super high educated, smaller places, you know, the Boulders, the Santa Fe's, you know, these kind of places that are very attractive to educated people. Remember, a lot of the educated people are going to be people in their 50s, 60s and 70s who are, you know, looking to locate in some place that's less expensive. One of the things you look at is what places like New York and San Francisco and even L.A. to some extent have is they have an attraction to people who, who can buy themselves out of the negativity. Other they do it because they're young and daddy's paying the rent or they're, they're very wealthy and so they can send the kids to private school and if there's a pandemic, they can run off to, to the Catskills or they can go to their condo in Florida. This class of people, which has been growing as our society has become increasingly feudalist and increasingly concentrated with you know a certain group of people, those people are going to pick the San Francisco's and the New York's and the L.A.'s. Now, they may not stay there or they may have secondary residences, but these places do have a kind of appeal. And those industries that are most dependent on that labor pool will stay. But what we do see now is if you look at where the tech growth is, New York has you know, tech LQ about one, about the same as the national average. You know, there's the Raleigh Durham's, the Austin's. These are the places that are seeing the biggest increases over time. So I, I think that it's going to be a mixed picture. And I believe, as somebody who studies cities, that the biggest enemies of urbanism are those who are denying that anything has changed, that we're going to go back to where we were before. And I don't think that's the case. I think it will be different, which means you have to have a different strategy. Well, well, Joel, maybe I'm one of those enemies uh, that you're referring to, because while I agree with you that we will not go back exactly the same as we did before, like we didn't go back exactly the same post 9-11, post Hurricane Sandy, post the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, if you want to go all the way back to 1912, these things were transformational. But when you mention cities like Raleigh and Nashville and Denver, you put all those little guys together, they don't add up to one New York 
or one Los Angeles in terms of size. So yes, they may be growing faster, but New York still has this enormous uh, critical mass advantage in capital, in infrastructure, in people. And I do believe that its future is very bright, but it will be competing with some of these other places. But one of the things you bring up as well is this move to the suburbs. That's true. People are moving to the suburbs, but will they work in the suburbs? Will it be office buildings put there or will they gather strength? I'm not so sure. What do you think, Joel? I think there are going to be a couple things. First of all, I think the nature of work is going to change. In other words, a lot of the people who live in the suburbs and people will work at home. So the person who has been going to work into, let's say, uh, Irvine or taking the subway or train into Manhattan, you know, instead of going five days a week, they're going to go two days a week. I think that's going to change. I think there's also going to be a big change in business travel. People are going to say, okay, let's say even this event. Five years ago, maybe you would have bought a plane ticket and flown to New York to do the show. Now I do it in Zoom. I save myself all sorts of money. So, you know, I think that it's going to have a different configuration. I think that the real problem beyond the the technical one, and well, first of all, the comparison with 9-11, you, you didn't have you didn't have the option of the online that existed. By the way, after 9-11, you did start getting the first breakdown in some of the concentration in the financial service sector. But I think where you're really going to see some changes is that people are going to start to look at different places, different options, different ways of doing things. And I think the key thing for cities, and this is what I would tell the city leaders, make the places livable, make them make them more attractive. And I think a bigger problem than the pandemic is the breakdown of law and order, the rise of crime. That there's no recovering from. I think these things are, are really important issues. And I think cities should focus on how do you control that first? Looking at your writing, you mentioned Carthage as a city that failed in part because it was too commercial. Didn't have a, I think the word that you use is transcendental values, which I would suggest is a, some combination of arts, religion, kumbaya together. And you see that in some of the cities you mentioned. You see that in Boulder. You see that in smaller cities in the Arts District of L.A. You see it in the Wynwood section of Miami. So it's not just the small cities. It's some of these subsections of these bigger cities. So what are some of these things cities can do to put themselves at the head of the pack? Well, I, I'll tell you, the key thing is going to be neighborhoods. What makes a great city is neighborhoods. And Americans, you know, have always been, I would say, villagers. You know, there was that great book, The Urban Villagers, talking about immigrants moving into the Northeast. People lived in a neighborhood. And the neighborhoods, what's really interesting as I've been looking at it, while the downtowns are struggling, Noe Valley's doing okay. Ditmas Park in Brooklyn's doing okay. I'm sure that Echo Park in LA and, and Silver Lake are doing okay. I mean, the key to the building of cities, I think, is going to change. We had this period of intense focus of everyone in big buildings in the center of the city. I think the next phase is going to be thriving neighborhoods that knowledge workers want to live in. And then coming up with institutions so those knowledge workers will stay. I mean, education is going to be a key thing. Right now, a very unfortunate trend in cities has been the attacks on both merit, public schools, and public charters. That was a way that middle-class families of any race could stay in the city and send their kids to public schools. Look, 
The biggest reason I'm living in Orange County instead of L.A., where I lived for 40 years, is the public schools were just terrible. And I didn't want to pay for private school. We found excellent uh, public schools here in Orange County and now a great charter school, uh, public charter, that my daughter goes to, my youngest daughter. So, so I think you need a more grassroots attempt. You know, in some ways, a little dose of Jane Jacobs wouldn't be bad and a little less Robert Moses would be good. I think we have to talk about, look, you take a look at New York City, which is my native city, as you can tell from my accent. Most of the people I work with in the the creative industries in New York live in Brooklyn now. The reality is that's the strength of New York. The strength of New York is the neighborhood. The strength of L.A. is neighborhoods. The strength of San Francisco is neighborhoods. So if we start thinking about how do we improve the daily life of those very important creative professionals who live in these cities. Let's focus on the neighborhood first. You said something in your book, The Coming of the New Feudalism. It warns us against a future that we're going to become a renter society versus an ownership society. Now, rent is what we do. But what does this mean? And in particular, what does it mean for the future of cities and the middle class? Well, I think what's really critical is in all the surveys that we've done, we just did one with the LA Times with Reality Check. One of the things that you find is that, first of all, millennials and minorities view home ownership as key to being in the middle class. Roughly, you know, 50% say it's absolutely critical. Another 30 think it's very critical. I think the reality is that most people, except for the very wealthy, make most of their asset advances from ownership. And it also provides some stability. Um, it's, it's certainly much better for communities if most of the people are owners. If we become a renter society, it becomes more transient. We become more dependent on government. And you just don't get the same kind of civic values that you get when there's lots of people who are owners. And one of the big problems you have, let's say, in a city like Los Angeles, is we were always a, a homeowner-centered city. That was always a restraint on what's still very much a liberal culture. If we become a city of renters and we become a city where when people are upwardly mobile, they start thinking about what city am I moving to, that's not going to be very good for the future of Los Angeles. Can you relate urban agglomeration theory and the productivity efficiencies of cities to working in a physical office versus work from home? In other words, Aren't cities just a lot more productive than working from home? Um, Well, first of all, the results so far on this, on the work at home is actually managers have been pretty happy with it. And I mean, there are again, there are going to be certain functions like I would say an architecture firm, for instance, where having people together on a collaborative basis is probably pretty important. But I I think, and also this agglomeration theory, it turns out, if you look at it, it has nothing to do with density, it has to do with size of the region. And I think there will be some advantages to size. That size does not have to be heavily concentrated. Right now, probably the most successful mega, you know, sort of emergent mega city in America is Dallas. Dallas is certainly not concentrated. It has all different sorts of, of options. Phoenix, another very successful city, is very, you know, it's both big, but also not concentrated. So I think that, that, and then the last part of it is, it really depends on what you're doing. I mean, one of the things that I'm concerned about as a Californian, 
uh, even though I have a New York accent. Um, one of the things I'm concerned about in California is that we're, the new wave of tech companies that are connected to social media have no need to necessarily have large office footprints at, or be in a particular place. One of the things that I'm pushing in the work I'm doing here in California, which I'm doing for a member of the legislature in part, is th- industries like space, where you need that concentration of scientists and you need the people who can do the assembly and the, at, you know, you need the, like the old semiconductor industry, which you had to have a bunch of people in the same place because there were a bunch of very rare skills at the time. I think that, that there are going to be those industries that will need to have some concentration. Some of the medical industries may need it as well. But the reality is when you look at patents, the vast majority of the patents are created in suburban locations. Uh, that's continued all the way through. So, you know, again, there are going to be industries that are going to be uniquely dependent on urban densities. But I think that's not the vast majority. Well, Joel, let me, let, me, let me push back here. Based upon all the studies we did of the office pre-COVID, people wanted to go to the office. COVID did not completely change the mindset of what made humans humans. Humans still want to go to restaurants. They want to go to hotels. And yes, they want to go to office because they want to be more productive. At the same time, and this is where I'll push back on the data, the data that is being collected today is being collected under duress. People are going to have a different opinion in six months than they do today. Your reaction? Okay, first of all, they were already beginning to go online. They, they were already working at home. Most major metropolitan areas in America have more people working at home than taking transit. In, in, in LA, the densest urban area in, in the United States, about five years ago, the online people were bigger than the transit people, okay, already. So they were already voting with their feet. Then where are they moving? Where are educated millennials moving? Remember, millennials are getting in their 30s now. They were already moving to the Nashvilles and the, and the Dallases and the Phoenix. That was already happening. When I asked the kids in my class here in Orange County, which is as nice an environment as exists, and I asked them, how many of you out of 35, how many of you plan to stay here after the age of 30? maybe two or three, because they know I can't buy a house. I can't have a family here. The other thing is that fundamentally, people have been already expressing these things before I was able to write these almost exact same things before COVID. So to me, COVID is just a accelerator of these trends. It's like when you play basketball, you're supposed to watch people's feet, you know, when you're playing defense. Let's watch how people vote with their feet. Where are they moving? And we can tell that overwhelmingly they're moving to suburbs and smaller cities. Will there be an elite that will stay in the great cities like New York and San Francisco? Yeah, I think there will be. And I think those cities will be magnetically attractive to young people, pre-marriage, pre-family, for sure. And again, to the very rich, because the very rich don't have to suffer. You know, I remember having um, lunch with an editor of mine at the New York Times when I used to write for them. And he said to me, he lived in the Upper East Side. He said What's a, the, his favorite time of the year was the summer because there was nobody around. You know, these are people who have summer homes, have winter homes. 
you know, those people, I think, will be able to survive and, and do really well. Now, by the way, on restaurants and culture, there's several things. One, we are in a very different world culture-wise now than we were. I think it was Lenin who said that there are decades where months happen and there, and there are months where decades happen. Um, and I think, I think he was pretty much right about that. I think we've gone through that over the last year, year and a half. So I think that what you're, what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of people who are looking at things very differently. I think that, they're, they're, they, you know, again, I don't think these cities will go away. But I do think a lot of these speculative developments probably won't do as well as some people think they're going to do. And I think that you're not going to see 40% of people working at home. You'll see 20% working at home. And you'll see a lot of hybrid. And I think it's going to be a really interesting thing for office developers. How do you develop hybrid workspace? Also, in restaurants. One of the things that's really interesting to me was, whereas New York, for instance, has become less interesting for restaurants, particularly Manhattan, from when I was a kid, the suburbs, which were mind-bogglingly terrible for restaurants, are now have good restaurants. You know why? Because the immigrants have moved there. And let's face it, what makes American food great is the immigrants, whether as entrepreneurs or because of the cooking. You want great Vietnamese food, you come to Orange County. You want great Indian food, you go to New Jersey or Fort Bend County, Texas. If you want great Chinese food, you go to the San Gabriel Valley, east of Los Angeles. You know, in other words, the cultural life is changed. Plus, we now access culture increasingly online through Netflix. So the lastly, if we ever get to a point where we're opening up things again, which I assume we will, there's now greater cultural amenities. Suburbs have picked up some of the smarts of cities. Here in Orange County, when we moved to Orange County six years ago, I thought, oh, well, we'll be going to L.A. a lot. We almost never go except to go to the airport. In Orange County, we have the South Coast Repertory Theater, one of the five best theaters for new plays in the country. We have the Segestrum. There, There are... There's, there are arts communities that have developed in suburban Chicago, in Cobb County, um, Georgia, in, you know, so other words, the suburbs are no longer the sort of boring, homogeneous places that they once were. I think they're changing dramatically. I think suburbs can't say, stay the same either because they're now in this competition that they weren't in before. So, Joel, we only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask you for your final thoughts. It certainly seems to me that the media has changed since you first got into the business some time ago. And, and you know, you remember, Joel, the famous headline of the New York Daily News in the mid-1970s, New York dropped dead, uh, which was Gerald Ford when he wouldn't bail us out. Do you think that there are some in the media today that are saying to the big cities, we want the cities to fail? I don't think that that's the predominant view of the, the newspapers. The newspapers are urban enterprises. They would be committing suicide to do that. I think the New York Times in particular, you know, when I was there, I think we talked about this, and we used to, you know, I was doing a monthly uh, grassroots business column, and one of my editors said, you have to understand the one thing about the New York Times, it's not liberalism that's the holy grail, it's Manhattan real estate. <laughs> you know, that was the holy of holies. And certainly you're going to see a lot of people, a lot of newspapers try to bring back and advocate for offices. What's going to be really interesting to me is the dispersion of media, some of the new media, which is less concentrated. 
I increasingly do find that editors and reporters are now located in suburbs and sometimes smaller cities because they're able to do it remotely. Things that you had to be in Manhattan for, you don't necessarily have to be there. But I think there's also kind of like a emphasis on the story over what is actually happening. And I'm really interested in what is actually happening. Well, there is one thing you do have to be in New York for, and Manhattan itself may not be the holy of holies, but uh, Katz's Deli on Houston Street and their pastrami sandwich, that to me is one of the holy of holies. And I can't wait to be there and eat it in person, hopefully with you one day, uh, Joel. I, I hope so too. And look, one of the great tragedies of this and the last 20, 30 years in urban areas is how many wonderful, unique institutions are no longer there. So many of the great restaurants that I went to uh, when I was a kid, they're not there anymore. And unfortunately, what I'm afraid of is in this tsunami, this retail tsunami that's gone on, that chains are going to replace the last remaining locally owned restaurants as so many restaurants have been under so much pressure. The good news could be, and I'll leave you with a happy thought, maybe now that the rents go down, maybe there'll be some great new innovative restaurants and and other facilities that will come up because there's a real estate crash. And, And hopefully that will make cities more interesting. I'm very, I always think about walking in Manhattan with my grandmother who came from Russia in about 1900. And she would tell me that, well, you know, this was this neighborhood, this was this neighborhood, and how different they were. And going and seeing the Ukrainian neighborhoods and the Spanish neighborhoods and the Chinese neighborhoods and the and the Irish neighborhoods and the German neighborhoods, a lot of that's now gone. It would be great if some of those interesting, unique characteristics, they may not be ethnic, they may be different, that they do come back and that uh, maybe the city after all this will be more interesting and more dependent on its ability not to force people to be there, but have people choose to be there. Well, my grandmother, too, came to Manhattan in around 1900. uh, And uh, she just passed away, by the way, at 100 years old, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, you know when she knew she was rich, uh, Joel? When she had her own bathroom. Uh, (laughs) And it wasn't until her, uh, actually until she was in her 30s, and she'd moved to the Bronx. So uh, things change for sure. So, Joel, the next time we get together, I hope it is over a pastrami sandwich at Katz's or in Newport Beach uh, at one of the great restaurants along the boardwalk. Thank you very much, Joel. Thank you. To learn more about what work will look like, how workforces will be impacted, and what this will mean for real estate footprints, visit CBRE's The Future of Work. You'll find our latest data, insights, and solutions at CBRE.com slash The Way Forward. And for more info on our show, check out CBRE.com slash The Weekly Take. Send us your feedback as well. Whether you found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, Be well.